Chapter Twenty One of the Pocket Measure by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty One: The Answer. It is a note for you, Callie," Mister Spafford said as he returned from answering the loud peal of the bell. "The man who brought it is waiting for an answer." Read it, please," his wife said. She was on her knees beside the crib, bending over her baby. A note from some downtown neighbor expressing sympathy. This was what she thought. It was very kind, but the mother was in the mood just then to feel that human sympathy was a very little thing. Some day she might be able to thank the writer for kind words. She did not think that she wanted to take time from her baby to read them now. Indeed, she expressed as much while her husband was unfolding the sheet. Did you say he was waiting for an answer? I cannot answer notes now. Then he read, "My dear Mrs. Spafford, I have but this moment heard of your trouble. We are on the eve of departure for our seaside house. Expect to take the ten twenty train. I send the carriage with this, and my dear friend, do you and your husband with all speed get into it with that dear baby and come to us." I have known sea air to work marvelous transformations in baby lives. There is no time to lose in preparation. I would not, if I were you, delay one hour. We have a large cottage and ample accommodations for you all, and no more desirable spot could be found for a sick baby. Dick, our coachman, the bearer of this, is entirely reliable. And will drive you with the greatest care to the train where we will join you. The journey is a short one. Do not wait to do any packing. Mrs. Evans, through whom I learned just now of your great anxiety, will pack a trunk with whatever you can need and express to you promptly. Meantime, she is downtown purchasing under my direction sundry articles which I know to be needful to the comfort of sick babies who travel. I am the mother of five children. I know all about it, my dear friends. I feel so sure of your remembering that you are my brother and sister that I do not imagine you as hesitating for a moment on the score of false pride. Our father has entrusted me with ample means to pay all expenses of every sort, and directed me to take you, my dear kindred in Christ, under my care. I confidently expect to see you. For I know I am following the lead of Him who guides you and me. Mrs. Evans bade me say that you are only to throw together what may be immediately needed for baby's comfort. Bring your keys with you to the Twenty-third Street Depot. She will meet you there, take your directions, and attend to whatever may need attention in your home. Yours in great haste, Helen V. Temple. Long before he had finished reading this remarkable letter, Mister Spafford's voice had broken, and his eyes were so dim with tears that he could scarcely make out the words. The paper fluttered to the floor at last from his hands, and voice too much beyond his control to check its tremble, yet spoke with intense feeling. Before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. As for Mrs. Spafford, she had one of those merciful fits of really unnatural self-control come over her at that moment. The intensely practical part of her nature rose to meet the strain and served her well. 
she rose up from the crib, all the pallor gone from her face, and spoke in a clear, positive voice, "'Warren, the baby's clothes in the middle drawer, you know, tumble them into the large valise. His little cap and blankets are on the shelf in the clothes press, in the blue box. My hat lies on the shelf, and my sack is hanging beside it. Is that ten o'clock? There is no time to lose. Oh, Warren!' All the pent-up emotion, that if she had had time might have found expression, let itself out in those two words. Then she lifted her sleeping baby in her arms, and made swift yet tender preparation for a journey. I call you to witness to the true nobility of soul apparent in these two, that not a momentary thought of shrinking back from the offered hand, stretched out with such lavish help, occurred to either of them. They were simply above shrinking away from help, sorely needed and royally offered. Mrs. Temple's manner of receiving them at the depot was perfect. A quick, tender clasp of the hand, given to Mrs. Spafford, and low-toned words, "'I am so glad you are here in time. We need have no confusion. He looks really quiet, doesn't he? The ride down has not disturbed him. I have great hope of him. Change of air is just what he needs.' Mr. Spafford, suppose you seat us in the car while my husband is looking after tickets. Your wife will be able to get a little rest in the cars, I think. Not a moment's space did she leave for any attempt at thanks. On the contrary, she simply, and in a most natural manner, ignored any occasion for them, and gave herself entirely to the arrangement of details for the journey. Mrs. Evans came, at the last moment, flushed and breathless with the haste she had made, and deposited sundry packages on the seat beside Mrs. Temple, received from Mr. Spafford the keys and a few hurried words of explanation, and the bell rang and the whistle blew, and they were off. Even then Mrs. Temple contrived to keep their thoughts and her own absorbed by the sick child. She was alert and fertile in her suggestions and arrangements for his comfort and he showed his appreciation of her thoughtfulness by continuing his quiet sleep, so much more like rest than anything he had taken for days. Oh, you don't know, and the worst of it is I cannot describe to you, how that upper room, in which before night she was domiciled, seemed to Mrs. Spafford. A large bay-windowed chamber, delicately tinted walls, Casement windows reaching from floor to ceiling, hung with simple muslin curtains, India matting on the floor, the lightest and simplest of cottage furniture, everything pure, tasteful, restful. The windows were set open toward the sunset, and just before her there spread out that wonderful sight, of which some eyes never tire, the white-sanded beach washed forever by the ceaseless waves. She sat and listened to them as they rolled, one after another, one after another, always and always, one after another, up and down the sands. She heard the steady monotone of their voices as they went on and on in their tireless work. She drank in the salt air. She watched the curtains sway back and forth in the breeze. She watched the baby in the crib lying quiet, sleeping, 
breathing in like herself the air that, it seemed to her, must be health-giving. She thought of the breathless room where they had spent but the night before. She remembered just how breathless it must be there at this moment, and her heart went out in unspeakable gratitude toward those who had of their abundance come to her in her sore need. To him who had put it into the hearts of his children to do this blessed thing, the door swung softly on its hinges, and Mrs. Temple entered, her face radiant with some new satisfaction. Only to look at it was like breathing fresh hope into the mother's heart. "'Don't you think Dr. Everett is here?' she said, speaking eagerly. "'He has just sent in his card, and asked if he could serve us in any way. He is an old friend. I took the liberty of sending word to him to call on us immediately.' I knew you would like to have him see baby. Now, Dr. Everett was a name well known to Mrs. Spafford. He came from the same city as themselves, and only that very morning, when she sat with such a heavy heart looking down at her baby, after her physician had buttoned his gloves and departed, she had said to herself, If I had only asked him to bring Dr. Everett with him, if I had only asked Warren to go for Dr. Everett this morning. What do I care how much he charges to come away up here? I could pay him in some way. I could beg it. Then she remembered, with another dull thud at her heart, that she had heard him bemoaned as out of town. Now, barely a day intervening, here was she out of town too, by the side of the life-giving sea, and behold, the great doctor was within reach. Not only that, but was coming that evening to see her baby. Was not her cup of mercy full? Isn't it a curious thing that histories which cover weeks of time to live can be grouped and put into a half-hour's story? The weeks at the seaside, which followed this first evening when Mrs. Spafford sat and watched the sun dip down beneath the waves, were weeks the memory of which she will carry forever, even into heaven. So full of sweet, constant, merciful, loving kindness were they. Do you think that Mrs. Temple's kindness exhausted itself in the first day's effort? It is not so. Each passing day showed her as a marvel of thoughtful, unselfish wisdom. Thoughtfulness shone in ways that were easy to feel, but very hard to tell. There was an acceptance of Mr. and Mrs. Spafford as her guests for the season, in a sort of matter-of-course manner. She made them feel free to come and go, to take and receive, as they might have felt in the home of an actual sister. Aye, as it is not possible always to feel, even with sisters. She made herself one with them in their care and anxiety. She almost seemed to lift half the burden from them and bear it herself. Dr. Everett made his call and lingered beyond the time that his professional services were required, giving rather the care of a skilled nurse. He spoke hopefully, not too hopefully, because they who knew so well on what a thread the baby's life hung would not have been able to trust an emphatic assurance of safety. But he unbent from his grave professional air and expressed, as well as felt, sympathy and promised to come early in the morning, and came very early, and came several times during the day, 
and lingered as he could not have done had he been at home pressed with care. All this gave the Spaffords a certain relieved feeling that their baby was not merely one of the many sick and suffering babies, but a special object of the skillful physician's care. The mother expressed something of this feeling to Mrs. Temple one evening, and the manner in which that lady answered gave her a little lesson which she hugged to her heart and never forgot. "'I have often thought,' said the elder lady, a touch of sadness in her voice, "'how hard it must be for the great physician to bear with us in our determination to think of his love and care for us only as a piece of that which he bears for the great multitude.' instead of individualizing it as he constantly teaches us to do, and accepting him as caring for us with even more than the exclusive tenderness of love which we give to our own. Of course it is only a seeming with human physicians. They must exclude us when they go from us to others, and think only of them. But the heart of Christ, you know, is for each, as if each were alone in all the world the object of his care. Mrs. Spafford had no answer to make for a moment, and when she spoke she only said, Thank you, but the words were accompanied by a look which the other lady understood. Henceforth the young mother thought of Christ as bending over her baby in his crib, exactly as though there were no other baby on earth to claim his love and skill, and her heart was wonderfully comforted. Still, she thanked him daily for the human help and comfort afforded through Dr. Everett. As the days passed, and he came and went, she grew to think of him as a personal friend. She looked back often upon that first evening of his coming, and smiled over her folly, and realized that it was but the vagary of an excited brain to be so glad, so very glad, that he wore no gloves, which he drew on and buttoned as he pronounced in slow, quiet words what seemed like a death knell to her hopes. How foolish she was! Why did she care for gloves? What difference did it make how slowly the doctor drew them on, how carefully he buttoned them? Yet she found that the scene with just those little accessories had photographed itself on her brain, and all the darkness of that breathless morning came back to her, associated with that doctor standing beside her baby's crib, buttoning those gloves. Well, as the days went by, the steady kindness of those ministering never failed. Among Mrs. Temple's other thoughtful ways, there had been introduced to the household a middle-aged, calm-faced, low-voiced woman, who came in noiseless slippers and cool, dark dress, and the first time she lifted the baby in her arms, she cooed to him in so motherly a fashion that he laid his tired little head down on her shoulder and went to sleep. Then Dr. Everett, when he came, greeted her with a pleased face and a shake of the hand, and stepped to the piazza after Mrs. Spafford to say to her, "'I see you have Mrs. Philbrick here. My dear madame, she is worth more to a sick baby than forty doctors,' or even than a mother who is tired as you. I recommend you to go to bed and sleep all night. Baby is safe in her hands, for she is the wisest and tenderest nurse I know. There had been no talk about a nurse, 
no nervous heart-rending discussion about substituting some other care for the worn yet tireless mothers, but Mrs. Philbrick stayed. She is an old friend of the family, and has come to spend a few days with us, was Mrs. Temple's explanation, and she was always hovering within call, always motioning to the mother to lie down on the bed and let herself be covered with the baby's blanket or a light shawl, anything that would not look as though she had given up the baby and succumbed to fatigue, and the rests that she took thus were many and life-giving. Also, baby, with the rare wisdom common to his age, put in his powerful plea for resting both father and mother by taking the most obstinate fancy to nurse Philbrick, and waiting for her when she disappeared from sight. So, gradually and quietly, she came to be the recognized nurse, and the mother was learning to turn away from the crib with a great, deep sigh of restfulness, knowing that the weight of care was being lifted. Meantime, do you think this young couple, with not a penny in their purse and no visible means of earning one, were able to keep the bewildering future entirely from their thoughts? Yes, they were, almost entirely. But alas, that I should have to admit that the reason was not because of their conquering faith, but because all these thoughts were pushed out by a present and absorbing anxiety. They could not shut their eyes to the fact that, with all the advantages of C. Eyre and Dr. Everett and Nurse Philbrick, it was a fierce fight between life and death that was being waged over that one little baby. Ever present before them was the question, how will it end? They bore up wonderfully well. They made brave efforts to sustain each other, to appear grateful and hopeful, and in a sense at rest. But they did not trust themselves to any confidential talks, to any hints as to what might be. They just watched and waited. It was at the close of a long, bright day, nearly three weeks since they first came to their seaside retreat. An eventful day it had been. Baby Warren had swept quietly through the night, had awakened in the morning, his face bright with smiles, had sat up in Nurse Philbrick's arms and played a little in the old fashion, had taken his cream with a relish unknown for many a day, and the mother watching him felt that she had surely a right to let it into her heart that he was genuinely, hopefully better. All through the day he had sustained this hope, returning to many of his pretty baby ways that they had thought laid aside forever. The doctor had spoken not only cheerfully, but almost gleefully, in his morning call, and when he came again in the afternoon, had said, as he arose to go, "'Well, friends, my unusually long play-day is over, and I must go back to the city to-morrow morning. I have delayed for several days, in order to have the pleasure of saying to you, madame, that I feel perfectly safe in leaving this young man now in your and Mrs. Philbrick's hands. I don't think he will need a physician's care any longer. Then I think the light on Mrs. Spafford's face went a great way toward paying the doctor. There had been talk after that, much of it, of course. Careful directions given, earnest gratitude expressed, and more than a hint of the strong feeling that could never be expressed in words, and then the doctor had gone away, richer by far than when he came, 
for he carried a weight of gratitude from two full hearts, and he would be enriched by their prayers so long as they lived to pray. It was just at evening, and they were alone. War had given his last touch of exquisite joy to the full day, by playing for a little in the old-time rollicking fashion with his father's beard, the indescribable little coo in his happy voice, speaking as plainly of returning health and strength as words could have done. Then he had gone to sleep. "'Callie, see here,' her husband said, turning aside from the crib, where both had been lingering, and putting a paper in her hand, which, by the sudden paleness that spread over her face, he knew she recognized as a doctor's bill. There it was, a long, long list of visits from one of the most eminent physicians in a great city. But the last line read, Received payment, good measure, pressed down and running over. Leonard Everett. Oh, Warren! Mrs. Spafford said, and then this crowning act in their stream of mercies brought for the first time a rush of tears. I have not cried before since we left home she said, crying and laughing both in one, as she spoke. They showed it to Mrs. Temple, that carefully receipted bill, and, as they talked together of the doctor's skill and kindness, Mrs. Spafford said, But the joy is not all ours. I think, Mrs. Temple, it must be glorious to have money, to be able to do royal things such as you and Dr. Everett are doing." and Mrs. Temple, with her hand resting on the younger woman's head, made answer. "'Hush, dear, we have no money. It is all his. We are but stewards. Dr. Everett recognizes the kinship. Have we not all one father?' End of chapter 21